Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. Listening more specifically to the resuscitation of a fun little side project I did last year in the month of October, which is a mini-series that I like to call Hippookie Conversation. I am recording this on October 12th, and I'm realizing there's a weird thing going on in my voice right now. Maybe it doesn't sound different, but it feels weird. And I realize it's because I've not spoken to anyone today. I I am recording this at 10 a.m., and uh, it's been a weird morning. Because as I mentioned, yesterday I finished writing the first draft of that new book. And so I woke up at five today. Sometimes, like lately, as I've been winding toward the end, my eyes have been popping open at like four, and then I just get out of bed because I know there's no chance of me falling asleep again. I wake up super early, I take a quick shower, and I'm usually sitting down at the desk and writing within a half hour of waking up. And that's what happened today. Woke up at five, I was at the desk by 5.30, and then I realized like, oh, there's nothing left to write. There will be shortly. I have to finish typing up three entire notebooks. That's going to take me till the end of the month. And then I'm going to print that out and I'm going to let it sit for, and I'm going to let it sit for a while and I'm just going to do a bunch of reading. But these early morning writing hours are they're very quiet, very peaceful and I feel good if I'm doing some kind of work. So, for the next few weeks, they will be devoted to uh, the research that I need to do for this book. I've already read something like 34 or 35 books and I don't know how many JSTOR articles in researching this book since I started writing it uh, six months ago, around there. But yeah, there's a lot of shit that I've been putting off reading because it's like really dense and I don't understand. It's gonna be a very uphill challenge to wrap my mind around it and that's what I'll be doing for the next few days. But there was no imaginative writing that I had to do this morning. Could have done creative writing, like a blog post that's creative or a podcast script, also creative, but it's not like I'm conjuring shit out of the air. So I'm sitting here and I'm drinking coffee. It's my second cup of the day. I'm a little worried about it because I have to go pick up Marie from the airport in about an hour. And it's gonna take me an hour and a half to get to the Fort Lauderdale airport. And I always have this fear that it, when I'm on the expressway or whatever you call those elevated roads where people go fast and don't stop, every now and then the traffic gets really congested and it comes to a standstill. And I'm always afraid I'm gonna be stuck in one of those really dense traffic standstills and I'm gonna get like struck with diarrhea. It's never happened before, but I've heard stories of it happening before. Um, A few years ago, you could probably Google this and find the article. There was um, a news story about this old woman. She got into a car accident. It wasn't very severe, but like substantial damage had been done to the other car and she was responsible. And then she left the scene of the accident. But she was a really old lady and the cop, I guess it was Columbo, he was like, let's check our house. So they go and they check her house and they, you know, hey lady, are you in there? She opens the door and she's like, oh, hello. And the cops are like, hey, here, put these handcuffs on, you criminal. You cannot leave the scene of a crime. And the woman said, oh, the only reason, I was gonna go back, I'm actually on my way back to the crime scene now, but I have diarrhea. And she did something, like she was able to present them with evidence. I don't know what the evidence 
would be. God, what? I feel like I'm in a select minority in that and a very privileged minority to be able to say that at the age of 31, I have never broken a bone or shat in my pants, but I'm always afraid it's gonna happen on the same day. And uh, someone's gonna have to come and tend to me while I'm, <laughs> while I am encaked if that's a word. It, uh, Philip Roth wrote a memoir called Patrimony. It's about him taking care of his very elderly father while his father was dying of a brain tumor. And his father's undergoing all these procedures and there's a part where, like they're having a nice, you know, Sunday lunch or something and the father's like, hey, I gotta go to the bathroom. I'm gonna go upstairs. So he goes upstairs and he's gone for like an hour and a half. And Philip Roth goes upstairs to check on his dad and his dad is weeping. And he, he shit all over himself and all over the floor because he'd been constipated for like four days and hadn't told anyone. As Philip Roth recounts it, his father is screaming and while crying, I've, I beshat myself, I beshat myself. It's an interesting part in that memoir because Philip Roth talks about how it was almost like a baptismal thing. Like he's so grateful that that episode happened because I think he said he like helped his dad take a quick shower gave his dad a Valium and put him to bed. And then Philip Roth got down on his hands and knees and like had to take a toothbrush to the tile grout in order to, to clean up the mess. And he's like, I, it was just this epiphany of what, well, it was like an official reversal of the roles. Suddenly the son had kind of become the father from that point forward. I don't know, it's a weird Philip Roth thing. Still don't know how I feel about Roth to this in the wake of that biography that came out and the scandal surrounding that biography. I think my, my tastes have just changed and I'm no longer interested in capital L big literary novels where nothing really happens. Like it's just a book about a bunch of people with complexes and they go to bed with each other and then they argue about how they went to bed with each other. And then at the end of the book, none of the crises are resolved. It's a, it's a matter of the, our characters learning to live alongside of the crises or alongside of their shortcomings. Like nobody seems to really change in literary novels. So lately I've just been kind of reading stuff in which, you know, just people get shot. I like, there's something dramatic about that. Elmore, someone asked the crime novelist Elmore Leonard, like, why are there so many guns in your books? And he was like, yeah, I have, there's a lot of guns in my books, but you'll notice there's none of like the pornography of gun, gunning. He's comparing it to run-of-the-mill male action novels. He says, you know, I, I describe a character as, as carrying a pistol. I don't say it's like a, it's a plastic grip Glock 912, Glock 12, nine millimeter with a fucking steel slide. And a, a gun is just a dramatic device. And that is how I use it. My character has a gun and he shoots someone and that person falls down and they die. I don't talk about burst, you know, viscera bursting out of their bellies. You know who else does that shit? Not the viscera thing, but like the very clean thing. Louis L'Amour. You might not think that you know who Louis L'Amour is, but you do, because your grandfather had those books on his shelf. They were thin pocket paperbacks of Westerns. Uh, Louis L'Amour wrote l literally like 180 of them. And I was reading one of them earlier this year because the book that I just finished, I feel like I don't, I don't know if this shit is worth talking about, but like, and I don't even know if, it, if, it's, if it's wise of me to disclose, but I'll just say that like, it's set in the 1920s. It's set mostly in the 1920s, and it's a, it is both a Western and a 20s prohibition gangster metropolis kind of story. But so I was reading a bunch of Louis L'Amour books, and I was struck by this thing that he does. I remember the exact line comes from a book of his called Chansey, and it's there's two cowboys, they're having a standoff, and the hero, Chansey, he pulls his gun and he points it at the enemy, and the Louis L'Amour writes, 
Chansey cocked his pistol and shot him through the body. Shot him through the body. I love that. I don't know why. It's so fucking stupid, but it adheres to kind of the Elmore Leonard sensibility of like, hey, this isn't, you know, theatricality. This isn't pornography. This isn't, you know, the aestheticization of violence. This is just, hey, here's a pistol and that's a person who could be killed by this pistol. Drama is born. One of the things I was researching recently on JSTOR, and by the way, JSTOR is, it has a reputation as being like this scholarly thing, and the only people who would need to go on JSTOR are people who are in some sort of scholarly situation. You have to research shit, you're gonna read a bunch of dense material. Let me assure you, everyone gets a hundred free articles a month, and a lot of it is really accessible, and you can find really fact-packed things about the most esoteric topics. Like I was, re like in research for this book, I was re I was looking up papers about certain aspects of the black experience in early 20th century America, particularly as pertains to like the cultivation of jazz. And I came across an article that, and it was so specific. The title was something like African American Leisure in the 1910s. And it was like a very comprehensively researched 15 page paper about how Black Americans traveled by train, how they went on vacation, and, you know, in a way that was safe because, like, yeah, if you were a black person, you could get on a train in the United States. Probably, it was kind of dangerous, though, which is why, this is a fucking digression, sorry, but one of the things I learned from that paper is that in the early 20th century, more black people belonged to social clubs by a long shot, and one of the reasons is that if members of a black community somewhere wanted to go on vacation, rather than take their chances of like going on a typical train by themselves or gathering their family and going on a train full of white people where they were gonna get fucking harassed, instead, like their local social club would comprise maybe a dozen families and then the, all those families would throw in money and they would like rent their own boat. For the, for the trip, or they would rent out a train car. Thought that was interesting. Anyways, another thing I was reading about, and these two aspects do not overlap, um, I was reading about fucking witchcraft, and not a, not a huge amount about witchcraft, but you know, that's fucking, that's another thing, is like, I'm researching these topics for this new book, and I don't know when to stop, because there is an, uh, there's literally, okay, David Foster Wallace described this well, I know it's annoying to quote David Foster Wallace, but he was talking about the fundamental difference between writing fiction and writing nonfiction, and he said, they're basically, it's two different kinds of the same abyss. In fiction, you are conjuring things out of nothingness, and that nothingness is vast and eternal. And then when it comes to nonfiction, you're looking at the world around you and you are just being very discriminating and very selective about which details you choose to put down. But but it's 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 also an endless abyss. And in the interview where he mentions this, he says, you know, we're sitting in a radio studio. It's not very lavishly decorated, but we could easily spend a hundred pages describing the interior of this room. And so, like, if I'm writing now about like prohibition or certain presidencies or certain a aspects of jazz or organized crime, the old West, the myth of the West, whatever, each one of those topics is its own abyss. Like. Ken Burns has an 18-hour documentary about the history of jazz, and 
I think it's fucking 20 years old, and he still gets approached by people with, like, contentions about, you know, hey, that person who you said invented ragtime did not invent ragtime. There's a reporter, I think, he's, I think he recently died, his name is John McPhee, and he was, he was an investigative reporter, and someone asked him, how do you know when you're finally done with your research and, and you have enough material that you can sit down and write the piece? And he said, the way I know that I've done all the necessary research is when I, when I encounter myself coming back the other way. And that's a very, like, pithy fucking answer, but it's also kind of romantic, and I don't think, like, research works that way. So I don't know how deep I'm gonna go into this witchcrafty wormhole, but learn some things about witches, and uh, I'm just here with my coffee, waiting to have to not poop in traffic, so let's talk about witchcraft! Didn't learn a whole lot. Basically what I learned is um, the accusation of witchcraft was a way to persecute women, to punish women, often or sometimes to punish the men who love those women or you know their children. And when you think about the lore of witchcraft, what are the materials that come to mind? What are the tools of a witch? There is a cauldron, which in other words is a pot. There are jars of you know herbs and spices. There is a broom. Often there's some kind of like a, a fr a, the familiar, which is a cat or a frog or a bird. These are either domesticated pets or, in the case of a bird, maybe like the, the carcass of an animal that, you know, a woman is preparing for that meal. And I, the reason that that was significant is because as this author is pointing out, if someone accused you know, Agatha of being a witch, and there was some resistance, and people were like, I don't know, I don't think Agatha's a witch. The accuser could be like, oh yeah? Well, let's let's have a look in our kitchen, and oh, what's this? A broom? And oh my, what, there's a pot? On the stove? Another thing I learned about witches is um, apparently one of the demographics that most suffered witchcraft accusations was midwives. And part of it was like if a midwife was helping to deliver a child and the child was born with some kind of deformity and it had died, um, the, the grieving mother would accuse the, mid, the midwife of witchcraft. And what one thing that this author goes on to explore is how in some of these witchcraft trials, they were the first occasions for public discourse about feminine health, uh, reproductive rights, and hygiene. Because whenever these midwives were accused of witchcraft because a child was stillborn or had some kind of deformity, the midwife would have to take the stand and, like, explain certain elements of the birthing process. And then, because, of course, it was men running these courts and men conducting the inquiry, in order to substantiate what the midwife, this, this fucking crazy demonry that the, that the midwife was talking about, fucking vulva what, they would bring other women onto the stand, trustworthy local women, and they'd be like, let's say, um, Daphne. Hey, Daphne. Tell me, is that is that midwife telling the truth? Do you have do you have this thing called a, a vagina? And then Daphne would say, actually, yes, I do. Most women do. And another thing, though, about that is midwives knew a lot of stuff about the birthing process. And in the 1600s and shit, a lot of the knowledge. Remember, just think about the Book of Genesis and like, don't eat that the fruit from the tree of knowledge. So, if a midwife claimed like 
extensive, it was a woman with extensive knowledge about the life creation process. It was seen as kind of her her heretical because that's the kind of information that only God is supposed to have. And if ever a human was supposed to have it, certainly it was not a woman with one of these weird cryptic vaginas betwixt their broom-straddling legs. And then another thing, like, not just did midwives know a lot about the birthing process, but, like, midwives were the ones who went out and disseminated information about, uh, what's it called? Contraceptive and contraceptives themselves. I don't think there were many tools. Like, I think sheep intestines were used for actual condoms. But yeah, so it was like, okay, these midwives have, have mysteriously procured knowledge on how to bring life out of a woman and also how to prevent life from forming in a woman and that seems pretty much like knowledge that no human should possess therefore you know let's make sure she doesn't have a broom it's nothing to laugh at but i mean like it, it, it is made immediately scary and horrifying uh, all anew when you realize that like virtually none of it has changed like empirically yeah we're not burning these people alive anymore or throwing them into the into the ocean but really doesn't seem that far away like when you think about the overturning of Roe that does it, like it still it's it's basically the same thing which reminds me there's a woman who's still involved in a court case where she like she's pregnant and because in her state I forget where she is because, you know, a fetus is considered a person with rights and you cannot get an abortion, she started driving in the carpool lane. Like, she's the only passenger except for the baby uh, in her stomach, the fetus. And she got pulled over by a cop, cause, and the cop's like, why are you driving alone in the carpool lane? And she's like, well, the, the Supreme Court just told me I have another person in this car, so I think I should be able to use the carpool lane. And, uh, yeah, she's taken it to the courts and it's going far. She got pulled over a second time recently. I think that's why the, the story crossed my desk again. Uh, just speaking of, like, objectifying human beings, another thing I'm doing, uh, for research, and, like, this is how I ended up spending my morning since there was nothing to write about, but I, you know, I was in a, you know, book-making mood. I'm reading a history called The Slave Trade. It's a thousand-page history of exactly that by a historian named Hugh Thomas. I think it's actually Sir Hugh Thomas. He's he's English and he wrote a great history of Cuba like 40 years ago, which I consulted heavily for both Cuba Fruit and now the new one. And one of the things I was reading about this morning, and it never fucking occurred to me, one of the major elements of the slave trade uh, of the oceanic, you know, the traversal of oceans during the slave trade was piracy. And so there'd be a Brazilian vessel going to Spain with a bunch of slaves that the crown had purchased and then that ship would get intercepted by the Dutch and the Dutch would be like no these are our slaves now and they would bring the slaves from that ship onto their ship and then sometimes the, a pirate would take them would would intercept them on the way back and it just makes you think of like imagine being like all the slaves on those ships who you get kidnapped from your home and then you're, and then you are kidnapped away from your kidnapper, and then you get kidnapped again on the journey to you don't know where the fuck. I was thinking like, hey, this is an episode of a Pookie Conversation. I should read some of the sort of Halloween-themed blog posts I've been doing, and that'll give me content. Didn't expect I would just sit here with my coffee and have so much to talk about. Obviously, all of it very intricately connected. Traffic jams, witchcraft, the slave trade. I am uh, working at the restaurant all weekend, but very much uh, looking forward to Halloween ends. 
the conclusion of this reboot trilogy. I'm sure it'll only be like three or four years before we get another one, but fucking cool. It's nice that there was like a neatly packaged long-form story. Something I mentioned in the conversation episode with Don Winslow, which incidentally was one of like the greatest fucking half hours of my life. Go ahead and listen to that episode. He, we were talking about, like, he's just completed this trilogy that he envisioned as a trilogy, and now he has executed and completed it as a trilogy. But, like, almost none of the trilogies that I love were conceived as such. It's kind of like that there was a one-off of this new intellectual property. It did well, so they made another one. Happened with RoboCop, The Godfather, Toy Story. I still haven't, Toy Story seems like a fucking perfect trilogy, and I still haven't seen part four, even though I'm over the moon about the Toy Story trilogy. And I think part of the reason I haven't seen it is because I fell in love with it when I was four, when the first movie came out, and then I saw the third movie, like on the eve of my going to college, and that's what that movie is about, is about Andy going to college and getting rid of his toys. Man. Anyways, all right, I gotta fucking get ready um, to go. No, oh my god, I have to clean this apartment. I don't do any, I didn't do anything like crazy destructive, but the dog sheds a lot. um, And so I gotta Swiffer and like do the dishes. Fortunately, there's not that many dishes because I either, because I don't like to prepare food. So what I do is I either go and I get food or I starve. And I wonder how long I can keep that up. Anyways, that's enough for this day's Epoki Conversation. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time.